please eat your pistachios because as the book shows, pistachios are the highest source of melatonin of any food that's ever been recorded. Vastly more melatonin than anything else. And you go, well, wait a minute. I don't want pistachios to put me to sleep. It turns out that our mitochondria have to have melatonin as their major antioxidant. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Mind Valley podcast today. We're going to be talking about a concept called the energy paradox. So, I want you to just mentally check in with yourself. Are you the type of person who every now and then has that sense of tiredness looming at 5 p.m.? You feel that you got to eat a Mars bar or you got to like take a nap to get your energy going upwards again. Or perhaps you are the type of person who wakes up in the morning and needs a cup of coffee to get going. Now, don't worry. We're not going to do anything here that's going to take you away from coffee. You guys know how addicted I am to coffee, but what we are going to teach you to do is to make coffee optional. We're going to show you as much as we can with Dr. Stephen Gundry, how to put yourself in elevated levels of energy. Now, let me tell you about our guest today. His newest book is called The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. I'm around 20% into this book right now. I love Gundry's way of writing and I'm learning so many new things. For example, as I was reading the book today in preparation for this interview, I've always known about vitamin D3, right? We've had Dr. Daniel Amen come on this podcast and talk about vitamin D3 and just how much of it we need to be taking for immunity. What I did not know is in the words of Stephen Gundry, vitamin D3 actually unlocks near superhuman levels of energy. And I just realized, damn, I got to be taking even more vitamin D3. There are so many practical gems in this book that are going to shift your day-to-day life. Now, You can learn more about the book on drgundry.com, D-R-G-U-N-D-R-Y.com. And let me tell you about the man behind the book. Dr. Gundry offers readers the information and tools necessary to quiet the autoimmune battle raging within, the battle that depletes precious energy reserves, leaving you drained and prone to mood disorders and weight gain. Yes, this is true. If you aren't in control of your energy, it's also affecting your moods and it's affecting your weight. Now, what you're going to learn in this book are concepts such as the microbiome. You're going to learn 30 new plant paradox-approved recipes. You're going to get a list of energy-boosting foods to consume. And to know what energy-depleting foods to avoid, you're also going to get a training on modern medical science, particularly around the butt biome. In fact, I'm going to ask Gunbri to explain his equation. E, energy, equals M squared, C squared. If that reminds you of Einstein, that's precisely what Dr. Gundry is trying to do. We're going to go deep into that equation and what it means for you. Now, this isn't Dr. Gundry's first book. He's written multiple New York Times bestsellers, including The Plant Paradox, The Plant Paradox Cookbook, The Longevity Paradox, with a beautiful subtitle, How to Die Young and at a Ripe Old Age. And he just released The Energy Paradox, What to Do When Your Get Up and Go Has Got Up and Gone. It was released on March 16th. We are on April 6th. And so this book is hot off the press, folks. Go get it. Now, Stephen, welcome to the Mind Valley Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. So, Stephen, there's so much we can cover, right? But I want to start with the following. When you talk about low energy, what is that? How does that show up in our lives? Well, you know, if you look at surveys, particularly in America, over 60% of people complain of tiredness or brain fog or fatigue as one of their major complaints. In the good old days, when I started this over 20 years ago, I would see people in their 50s and 60s and 70s who were complaining of being tired. But now I see millennials, I see people in their 20s whose major complaint is I can't get through the day with exactly what you talked about. I need a nap. I need a double espresso. I need an energy bar. I guess that's just a part of modern life. The point of all this is it is not a part of modern life. And these are actually warning signs that there is a power failure in our energy producing organelles, which are called mitochondria, number one. And number two, 
most of us suffer from leaky gut as one of the major reasons that we have no energy. We can talk about both of those or one of those. Let's actually talk about both, mitochondria and leaky gut. Can you explain those deeper? Yeah. In fact, since you mentioned the energy equation, E equals M squared C squared, the M squared is actually mitochondria and microbiome. The microbiome, we now know, is probably the most important organ in our body. And the microbiome contributes not only defense against the foods we eat, the microbiome we now know educates our immune system as to whether our immune system ought to be interested in foreign proteins or ought to really not care so much about these foreign proteins. And more importantly, since you've had Dr. Daniel Amen on, my friend, he will tell you and I will tell you that the microbiome is probably mostly responsible for our mood, whether we're anxious, whether we're depressed. And in this book, The Energy Paradox, I talk about the new discovery that the microbiome communicates to the rest of our organs, the rest of our nerves, via what are called postbiotics. Now, everybody's heard of probiotics, friendly bacteria. You eat your yogurt and you get your probiotics. And a lot of people are beginning to understand the importance of prebiotics. Prebiotics are the fibers that we can't digest, but the gut microbiome eats. And when they eat prebiotics, they produce postbiotics, and I jokingly call them bug farts or bug poops because they are actually short-chain fatty acids and also gases that we now know is a communication system between the microbiome and mitochondria, and they're actually sisters. Mitochondria are ancient engulfed bacteria that exist in most of our cells that produce ATP, the energy currency. And the Nobel Prize for Medicine a few years ago was awarded for the discovery that postbiotics actually constitute a language, a true language, a trans-kingdom language, where mitochondria listen to their bacterial sisters in the gut and receive messages about what to do and how much that, energy to make. That's so interesting. So about the microbiome, now correct me if I'm wrong, roughly 3 to 4% of our body weight is our microbiome. And we have more, I remember reading Yuval Hariri's book, Sapiens, and I think he mentioned that we have more non-human cells within our body, the microbiome, all the bacteria in our gut, in our throat, than we do human cells. So we are made up cell-wise more in terms of non-human cells than human cells. And these non-human cells constitute 4% of our body weight and is the microbiome primarily in our gut and stomach. Would that be a correct way of... One of the things I've realized after conducting well over a thousand interviews with the world's greatest thought leaders in everything from entrepreneurship to spirituality to health and wellness to relationship is that life is enormous. And there are so many ways we can make our life better and better in every way, in every single day. If you're successful in just one area of life, you might just suck in another. I've known billionaires whose romantic lives were in shambles. I've known incredibly emotionally intelligent people who just couldn't make money. And that's totally fine. It doesn't matter where you are. Life doesn't have to stay the same forever. You're not cursed or destined to be miserable or unlucky in love or struggling to make ends meet. You were just never thought how to have it all, how to do things differently, how to master the human experience from a mind, body, and soul perspective. This is where Mind Valley membership comes in. When you become a Mind Valley member, you are coached by the greatest teachers in the world. You get to live a life beyond your wildest dreams and learn the best systems, protocols, methods, step by step by step in just 20 minutes a day to get there. You become the man or woman that you've always aspired to be. And this happens in the easiest, most effective way. 
because of the Mindvalley transformational model. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now. Don't settle for ordinary. Don't settle for your life the way it is now. Aspire to step into your greatness. Expressing it? Yeah, but it's even more interesting than that. Even though 90% of all of our cells are non-human, 99% of all our genetic material is non-human. Our human genome is infinitesimally tiny compared to the microbiome genome. And the microbiome procreates, divides constantly, and is constantly getting a new mixture of genetic material. And so many of us, and I've written about this in The Longevity Paradox, many of us believe that we've actually uploaded to our microbiome cloud processing of day-to-day information because this microbiome supercomputer is far more vast than our own genetic computer. That's crazy. It's just bizarre, but many of us call it the microbiome cloud for processing information. Now, you mentioned something else. A microbiome affects our moods. I read that serotonin, which is one of the happiness chemicals, Mm -hmm. is produced 90% in the gut and not the brain. In the gut, correct. And so if your microbiome is out of balance, this is going to affect your levels of happiness. Correct. It's absolutely true. We we used to think this has evolved very, very rapidly. We used to think that the brain sent messages down to the gut, but we now know that just in terms of nerve fibers, for every one nerve fiber going to the brain to the gut, there are nine nerve fibers going from the gut to the brain. So the gut is actually controlling directly through landlines the brain. But what's more exciting than that is chemicals like serotonin, which we used to think were either made in the brain or in the neurons surrounding the gut. We now know that that was wrong. It's actually made directly within our microbiome in the gut and then gets released into the bloodstream. Okay, so let's go back to that equation. Energy equals M squared, C squared times C squared. What does that equation mean? What is the M and the C in that? All right, again, the M is the microbiome and the mitochondria. The mitochondria are the energy-producing organelles. And they're actually ancient bacteria that have been involved. They're in your cells. They're in your cells, correct. Two billion years ago, bacteria were engulfed by other cells. And in exchange for a nice place to live and food that the cell provided, the bacteria, the engulfed bacteria said, okay, in exchange for food and a nice place to live, I will produce ATP for you. I will give you energy. And if that had never happened, life on earth would not exist. It produced eukaryotic cell and there won't be a test. That's how, believe it or not, we have bacteria that produce our energy for us in our cells. And what does the C squared stand for? Great question. Stands for chronoconsumption. One of the really exciting advances in our understanding of how mitochondria work, chronoconsumption means time-controlled eating. And consumption means there's certain foods you ought to eat, and there's certain foods you shouldn't eat for perfect gut health. This is so intriguing. Chronoconsumption. I know mitochondria. I know about the biome. Chronoconsumption is that missing piece of the puzzle. Let's talk about that. Unwrap chronoconsumption for us. Great. And here's the best way to do it. Years ago, there were, well, in every animal studied from yeast to fruit flies to worms to rhesus monkeys, we've known that the best way to produce health span, which is good health for a very long time, and lifespan is calorie restriction. That is, limit the number of calories per day that you give an animal to eat. And if you drop the calories by 25%, you extend health span and lifespan. This has even been done in rhesus monkeys. There were two competing studies, one at the NIH and one at the University of Wisconsin, and they had slightly different diets that they gave these monkeys. 
only the University of Wisconsin monkeys lived longer than counterparts that weren't calorie restricted. The NIH group, they had great health span, but they didn't live any longer. The diets were slightly different, and there were debates as to why this was. So a researcher at the NIH that I talk a lot about in the energy paradox, Dr. DeCabo, said, I'm going to settle the matter. He says, I think everybody's wrong about this. He says, I don't think it's the fact that we restricted these animals' calories that made the difference. I think that when you don't get a lot to eat and you're a controlled animal and your food is put out for you, I'll bet you if you have 25, 30% less to eat, you're going to eat that food really quickly. The rest of the time, the rest of the 24 hours, you're not going to be eating. You're fasting longer than somebody who's given more food to eat. And I'll bet you that it was the length of time that the animal was fasting that made the difference, not the calories. Long story short, takes two groups of mice. One's given the NIH diet, the other one's giving the University of Wisconsin diet. Two groups, two sets of mice in each group, uh, one set of mice in each group got food for 24 hours, normal amount. One group was calorie restricted, 25% of their food less, but it was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon. Mice eat mainly at night. The third group, they got all the food that they would normally eat in 24 hours, but it was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon. So they followed these mice. Lo and behold, only the mice where the food was put out at three o'clock in the afternoon had what's called metabolic flexibility. Their mitochondria could make energy from either sugar or from free fatty acids from fat. So this is evidence for the power of intermittent fasting. Correct. Amazing, amazing. How would that apply to human beings? Well, let me give you a human study that's a correlate of this using Italian athletes. So they took two groups of Italian athletes. They had them on an exercise program. They were cyclists. They were given the exact same amount of food every day. What they did was just changed when the athletes ate. One group got breakfast at eight o'clock in the morning. They got lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had to finish dinner by eight o'clock at night. So they had a 12-hour eating window. Next group, same amount of food. They had breakfast, break fast, as I call it, at one o'clock in the afternoon. They had lunch at four o'clock in the afternoon, and they had to finish dinner by eight o'clock in the afternoon. So they now had a seven-hour eating window. When they followed these athletes, only the athletes with a seven-hour eating window lost weight and had markers of longevity markers called IGF-1 plummeted, but their performance, their athletic performance, was just as good as the athletes that ate in a 12-hour window. And all their genetic markers of, for instance, avoiding cancer were activated just by compressing their eating window. So they ate exactly the same amount of food but only the compression of the eating window caused them to lose weight and activate genes for longevity. This is fascinating. So I eat breakfast at one because I practice intermittent fasting in the morning. So I skip breakfast. I have a big lunch at one. I have dinner though from like eight to 8.30 and then I might watch some Netflix or read a book. I might have a glass of wine. I might eat some pistachios or some dark chocolate. And then I go to bed at 11. Now. Does my wine and my pistachios increasing my eating window? The pistachios do. There's actually evidence that wine probably doesn't. Please eat your pistachios because as the book shows, pistachios are the highest source of melatonin of any food that's wow. ever been recorded. Vastly more melatonin than anything else. And you go, well, wait a minute. I don't want pistachios to put me to sleep. It turns out that our mitochondria have to have melatonin as their major antioxidant. And as the book shows, there's actually very good evidence that wine is beneficial for you, not because of resveratrol, not because of quercetin, but wine is an excellent source of melatonin. 
as mm. is extra dark chocolate, cacao. So late night snacking is okay if it's wine, preferably red, pistachios, and dark chocolate. Correct. But put away the potato chips and the popcorn. You have no idea how happy you just made me. <laughs> like, I, I'm literally, I'm so thrilled right now because I was expecting to come in this call and realize that I have to give up some of my most favorite habits, which for me is red wine, pistachios, and dark chocolate. I have a glass of red wine every night, whether I want to or not. But if I stop eating dinner at eight and then I break my fast at one, that's eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, one, that's 17 hours, right? It's a 17 hour fasting window. But if I'm having red wine, say up to 10 p.m., am I reducing that fasting window to 15 hours? Yeah, you are. If you're having it with the pistachios and the chocolate, if you just had the red wine, it will not count against you. There's very good evidence for that. In fact, there's really fascinating evidence that it looks like a six-hour time-controlled eating window with an 18-hour fasting window may be the best. There's been a four-hour window that shows no additional benefit over a six-hour window. A lot of my readers may know that I, as far as I know, I was the first person to write about this in 2006. When even in 2006, I was in my sixth year of from January through June every year, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window during the week from 5 to 7 p.m. at night so that 22 out of 24 hours I'm fasting during the week. And why does it increase our energy? Well, let me give you the easy way to think about this. Mitochondria work incredibly hard to produce energy, to produce ATP, and they get damaged in the process of producing ATP. People have heard of free radicals. They've heard of reactive oxygen species, ROSs. They have to go get repaired. The downtime, which is when you're not eating, is when repair processes work. We won't go into how they get activated, but the longer the repair time that mitochondria have to get over the shock of producing energy, the better they are at producing energy when you need it. And so it's the compression of when they got to work on all the crazy food you're giving them to process. If you compress that, the longer they have to get over that, the better they are at producing energy for you. And the longer they are active and doing well, the longer you live, period. Amazing. That is such a powerful tip. Now, the next thing I want to ask you is this. You start chapter three of your book with a really interesting quote. And I want to read out this quote and play a game with the audience. I want you to guess the year this message was raised to the U.S. Senate. The message is this. This was in the Senate document published. The alarming fact is that foods, fruits, vegetables, and grains now being raised on millions of acres of land that no longer contain enough of certain needed nutrients are starving us, no matter how much of them we eat. What year do you think that statement was made? People are saying 81, 83, 43, 89, 63, 2007, 2005, 1960, 1970, 94, 1916, not even close, people. Stephen, when was that statement made? 1936. <laughs> 1936. That was before World War II. So if farmland in the U.S. was that barren in 1936, are we practically screwed right now? And what can we do about it? We actually need micronutrients. And those micronutrients, let's call them vitamins and minerals for ease. Our soils nearly almost a hundred years ago now, it was recognized that at least in the United States, and I can assure you wherever industrial agriculture is practiced, it's true. Our soils are completely devoid of potassium, magnesium, selenium. And the point of all this is we actually keep eating trying to get this bare minimum of micronutrients. And the point of that document, which is correct, is we'll keep eating until we reach that level that we need. And we're literally 
starving ourselves and we're overeating, trying to reach that level that we need. And it's no longer in our soils. It's no longer in our plants. An apple may look like an apple, but for instance, the vitamin C in an apple in 2021 is only about 20% of the vitamin C that was in an apple in 1950. That's just one example. Beautiful example from COVID. There was a study in China showing that there are selenium-rich soils in China and selenium-poor soils in China. The people from selenium-poor soils had a vastly higher infection rate of COVID and a vastly higher death rate from COVID. And the people from the selenium-rich soils had much less effect from COVID. That's just one tiny example. But what can we do about this? Like, how do we know that the food that we're eating right now are no longer as rich in nutrients? Now, is this specifically an American problem? Is this also true in Western Europe? Is this global? Yeah, it's global. It's Western Europe. Industrialized farming now has taken over the world. It's taken over the world because we've been led to believe that the only way that we can feed the world's population is industrialized, concentrated agriculture with petrochemical fertilizers. And in fact, what's been shown is that regenerative agriculture, where we actually do, for instance, crop rotation, where we graze animals during fallow periods, is capable of re-nourishing the soil, replenishing the micronutrients in the soil. And so what anybody can do right now is please, 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 at the very minimum, do organic food. And the other reason this is so important for really the entire world is glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, is one of the great poisons. I call it the antibiotic against the earth. And glyphosate has killed off the microbiome of the soil. It kills off our microbiome. It's in almost all foods we eat throughout the world now. Luckily, some countries are beginning to ban it. As many of us know, particularly the EU has become understandably concerned about the impact of glyphosate try, try to eat organic. That's amazing. You know, you were asking me, Stephen, earlier, where in the world I am right now. I'm in Tallinn, Estonia. I was in an event here and I met the minister of forestry. He explained to me that in Estonia, any food grown in Estonia is automatically organic. 51% of the land is covered in forests and it's completely organic. So everything in Estonia is organic. And I know so many people who move from America to Estonia, they're not even on a diet, they're exercising the same amount, but automatically they start losing weight because they're no longer eating American food, they're eating Estonian food. Now, Estonia isn't representative for all of Europe. It's one of the most advanced countries in Europe, but it shows just how much the organic nature of the food can actually influence your body. Are there any studies on this you could share with us? Yeah, and actually I go into a lot of these studies in the plant paradox and the longevity paradox. But your anecdotal story is absolutely right. And I actually share a number of them in the plant paradox. For instance, a young woman from Poland originally moved to Los Angeles and she developed some severe autoimmune diseases. And we got her corrected of her autoimmune diseases by changing what she ate and changing her microbiome. She went back to Poland to visit her family over a summer. And there she actually ate all of her traditional foods, which included sourdough bread, which we forbade her to eat in the United States. And we can go into why that might be. And she was thriving, did great. Autoimmune disease didn't come back. She came back to the United States. She said, you know, this is great. I'm cured of my autoimmune disease. I can have bread. I can have potatoes. Within weeks of eating our American sourdough bread and our American potatoes, her autoimmune disease flared right back up. It's just amazing how we're doing a good job of making our people sick. So 45% of our audience here are Americans. What can Americans do? Where can Americans get food that isn't going to make them sick? 
Get to know your organic farmers. Get to know any of your farmers. Join a food cooperative and get delivery of fruits and vegetables. One of the important things is please, please, please get your fruit locally and only in season. And I go into why this is important in the energy paradox. Believe it or not, our modern fruit has been bred for sugar content. Mm. sugar content only. And we are poisoning our mitochondria with fructose. And those of you who don't believe me, look at the evidence in the book. I have nothing against fruit, folks. I've got plenty of fruit trees in my backyard, but I only eat them seasonally. For instance, I'll use an example. I have blackberries in blackberry vines. Guess what? I only have blackberries for about six weeks a year. And that's when they're available. I don't go to a grocery store and get organic blackberries from Argentina in January because they're not from here and they're not supposed to be eaten. That's just one example. That is such an amazing tip. And it's starting to make sense to me right now because I've lived 10 years of my life in America. I travel around the world, but every time I go to America right now, even if it's on a two week trip, I put on two pounds. I've never understood it. And I just assume that maybe when I'm in America, I'm socializing too much. But here in Europe, I'm socializing just the same. I don't put on the same amount of weight. But in the US, I put on a pound a week just being there. It's kind of weird. And I thought I was eating healthy. But what I'm understanding from you is that even if you're eating the same food, the way it's grown in the United States is fundamentally unhealthy. Correct. For instance, we learned 50 years ago that if we gave animals small doses of broad-spectrum antibiotics, they would gain weight quicker and grow quicker than if we didn't give wow. them small doses of antibiotics. And we now know it's because these small doses of antibiotics change their gut microbiome to a friendly microbiome to an obesogenic microbiome. And what happens when you come to America, unbeknownst to you, is that our food has been sprayed with glyphosate, uh, Roundup, even conventional food now. All of our oats, all of our wheat, all of our grains, all of our soybeans have been sprayed with glyphosate, which is an antibiotic. And all of our animals are given antibiotics, even though it's technically against the law to give chickens antibiotics. The FDA has workarounds for getting antibiotics, even though, you know, against the law. I go into this in the book. So unbeknownst to you, just visiting us in America, even for a few weeks, totally changes your microbiome to an obesogenic microbiome. And you can thank us for adding a couple pounds to you. Wow. This is something I've observed. I've never understood the scientific basis for it. It is painful to hear. Sickness is good for business. And that's the underlying principle of modern agriculture, modern medical care, big pharma. Sickness is good for business. These are some shocking revelations, Dr. Stephen Gundry. Now, for those of you in the comments who are asking, what is the book again? The book is called The Energy Paradox. What to do when your get up and go has got up and gone. And you can learn about it on drgundry.com. D-R-G-U-N-D-R-Y.com. Go check it out, guys. I'm reading this book right now. And I got to tell you, it's a book that motivates you to action. And, and can I interject something? It's a really, really, really good book. Coffee does not break your fast as long as you don't put any cream or butter in it. I love that you said that. That's awesome. Now, many of you will notice that we have a Q&A box open. If you go to the Q&A box, you can post a question or you can vote up a question. I'm going to pick the top two people over here. I'm going to bring you live with Dr. Gundry so you can interview Dr. Gundry. You'll have five minutes with Dr. Gundry. Ask any question you want four to five minutes, let's say, you can take that snippet out and you can share it on your Instagram. How about that? Okay. We like to make our podcasts and our interviews interactive. We honor our audience. You guys always have incredible questions. And I want to give you a chance to come on stage with us and ask Dr. Stephen Gundry your big question. So go to the Q&A box. I'm going to continue interviewing Stephen for another five minutes. Go to the Q&A box, start voting for your top questions, and we'll be back with your questions. I got to say, this conversation is enlightening. It's also scary. I want to move really quickly to the next topic. 
So you've shared with us how intermittent fasting and how being conscious about the food we eat can already increase our energy. But in addition to food, what else can we do to regain our energy reserves? That's a great question. And I talk about in the book, energy snacking. I think this is a concept that long overdue. We've been fed a bunch of lies that we have to walk 10,000 steps a day. Believe it or not, the idea that we were supposed to walk 10,000 steps was made up by a Japanese pedometer company. There is actually no evidence that a human being is supposed to walk 10,000 steps a day. In fact, it's probably more like 3,000, and I talk about that in the longevity paradox, but it was invented by a Japanese pedometer company. So it's been shown that if we break exercise down into tiny bits, tiny snacks, it may be actually more effective than prolonged exercise. For instance, if you walk up and down stairs for one minute, and quite frankly, it doesn't take a long time and very many steps to walk up and down stairs for one minute, you'll get the effect of walking 10 minutes on a level surface just mm. in one minute. If you, for instance, are watching Netflix and you take an energy snack of just doing jumping jacks for a couple of minutes while watching Netflix, one of the things that's been shown is many times we feel hungry because we're actually bored. And if you take that hunger sensation and instead turn it into an exercise snack, two things happen. Number one, your hunger goes away. And it's actually quite dramatic. You can prove it to yourself. But number two, your muscles make these newly discovered hormones called myokines that actually stimulate your brain to be happy and stimulate your mitochondria to make more energy. So it's like, holy cow, if I'm feeling bored, you know, put on my iTunes and dance for three minutes to one of my favorite songs. Oh, I love that. And you'll be shocked with what happens. So walking 10,000 steps is a myth, but a micro myth. doses of exercise throughout the day Correct. is the way you want to go. So let me ask you this. I just thought this based on a recommendation from one of our previous podcast guests, actually a member of Dr. Daniel Amen's team who recommended that I invest in a QB machine. It's basically a cycle bike that goes on the floor and it allows you to move your legs as you are working. Are things like this useful? Yeah, they actually are. In fact, the concept came about if you look at people who are fidgeters, people who are, you know, I'm bouncing my feet right now, or tapping a pencil on the table when they're thinking, fidgeters actually are much healthier than people who are non-fidgeters. What about that? When I was living in Michigan, I remember I would see this news that if you fidget, you have this thing called restless leg syndrome. That's totally different. A lot of this actually came from studying this ancient hunter-gatherer tribe, the Hadzas in Tanzania. And I talk about the Hadzas in this famous right. study. One of the things, the Hadzas actually walk a lot. The men walk eight to 10 miles a day. But one of the things that when the Hadzas sit, and the Hadzas sit a lot, they sit by squatting on their haunches. And throughout Africa, you see that most people sit by you know, sitting on their haunches. And when you look at the amount of energy that's actually used in big muscle groups while sitting on your haunches versus sitting in a chair, it's actually dramatically different. Just for fun, folks, sit on your haunches and just look at the activation in your glutes and your quads, and you'll just be very impressed with how simple act of changing how you sit will actually change your energy. That's fascinating. Now, what about standing? I bought a standing desk, so my desk yeah. goes up and down. I push my chair away right now, but I'm standing. Is that something you would reiterate as a good practice? Yeah, standing's good, but I had the pleasure of knowing Jack LaLanne, which may mean something to people. He was really the godfather of fitness. Jack made it till 96, and I knew him in his later years. And Jack used to say that there are only two exercises that a human being needs for perfect health, 
and to use all muscle groups. And one was squats, deep knee bends. And mm-hmm. the other was planks or push-ups. And I've got both of those in the book. And what I tell people to do is, look, when you're brushing your teeth, hopefully twice a day, do deep knee bends. You're not doing anything else. And you know, do it for a minute or two. And you'll get in you know, two to right. four minutes of deep knee bends every day. Those of you who are Mind Valley members, if you take Ben Greenfield's Longevity Blueprint, he teaches you how to do 30 seconds of squats before a meal that boosts your metabolic rate. Yep. And if you do 10x of these six primary exercises in 10x, those two are covered. Knee bends, but done in an optimized way so you get even greater muscle stimulation, and push ups done in a super slow format so you also get the benefit of planks. So these are all integrated. Now, as we come to the final 13 minutes we have in this call, I want to come to audience questions. So the number one question is actually from Madelon. Madelon, I'm going to make you live. And Madelon has a question on fasting for women versus fasting for men. And is there a difference? Madelon, you are now a panelist. Go ahead, turn on your camera and ask your question to Dr. Gundry. Here we go. Well, this is actually one of my first calls. I never knew you could go live on them. Thank you so much for your interesting talk. I, in a lot of programs also from Mind Valley, I heard about intermittent fasting. And at one point in a call of, I think it was Ben Greenfield, he mentioned something about the window being smaller for women than for men. So I was wondering what your take is on it. I advise a lot of women in their childbearing years who are trying to get pregnant. And one of the things I think that's important to realize is if you're trying to get pregnant, then time-controlled eating or intermittent fasting is actually probably a real dumb idea. And I've had several women, actually Olympic athletes, who we actually made them gain about 10 pounds and they both got pregnant after trying for years and years. What happens is women, you guys have a very beautiful program for assessing how much fat you have available to have a baby and how things look in terms of how much food is available to you. For instance, it's really impossible for a woman to get pregnant if she doesn't have the fat stores to go without food for the nine months during pregnancy. And you won't waste an egg if you don't have those fat stores. But also, if, for instance, you're only eating six hours a day and the rest of the time you're fasting, we see a lot of women that that prolonged fasting period is actually hitting your receptors saying, ooh, it's a little dicey how much food is available to this person, and we probably shouldn't waste an egg right now. And so you don't need to do the six-hour fasting window There's actually some good data. If we can just get you to a 12-hour eating window, say seven to seven or eight to eight, you'll do fine. You won't lose much weight with that eating window, but you'll do fine. Okay, so yeah, it was more for the health benefits. Thank you. Thank you, Madelon, for your beautiful question. We're gonna bring up the next question. So the next question is from Lenka, and Lenka has a question on grains, even non-gluten grains. And which are the suggested grains for you? So, Lanka, I'm going to bring you on as a panelist. You'll be able to ask your question directly to Stephen. Hi, thank you. Yes, I would like to ask if it's good for our gut to eat grains, even non-gluten grains like quinoa, amaranth, millet, and if it is good to eat dairy food. Thank you. Great question. First of all, there are two grains that do not have lectins, and I guess I'm famous for talking about lectins. Gluten happens to be a lectin, but all grains except millet and sorghum have lectins. You can partially offset the effect of lectins in, for instance, quinoa or buckwheat by fermenting. The ancient Incas actually fermented quinoa. They let it rot. Fermentation in general destroys lectins, but fermentation does not destroy gluten. So I see a large number of my patients 
who have, for instance, sourdough bread, but not realizing that the gluten is not going to be destroyed in the fermentation process and they still react to it. The other thing that's fascinating is we do testing for sensitivity to all the grains. And 70% of my patients who are sensitive to gluten or gluten intolerant are also sensitive to corn. They literally cross-react with corn as if they were eating gluten. That's why so many studies show people with celiac disease, which is the extreme form of gluten intolerance, when they're put on a gluten-free diet and followed for a year and a half, 70% of them still have celiac disease despite a gluten-free diet because they're eating non-gluten grains and the non-gluten grains react as if you're eating gluten. So uh, long story short, millet and sorghum are your safest grains and they're easy to find now and they're delicious. In general, most people are able to tolerate the proteins in goat milk and sheep milk and water buffalo milk. If you're in Southern Europe, particularly France, Italy, Switzerland, most cows are what are called casein A2 cows, which for most people are safe. If you're in Northern Europe, most cows are casein A1 cows, which in general aren't very safe. In general, sheep cheese and goat cheese may be some of the best foods that you can eat. And I'll go into that in my next book, but for now, there's a lot of very strong evidence that sheep and goat cheese eaters have impressive longevity. That is amazing. Again, you just say all the right words, Dr. Stephen Gundry. I love goat cheese. So Lenka, thank you. Lenka, where are you from? I'm from Czech Republic. So Czech Republic, the cows in Czech Republic, that's kind of in between. Would that be casein? So they're probably casein A1s, but Swiss browns are casein A2. Belgian blues are casein A2. Again, most French and Italian cows are casein A2. Spanish cows are casein A1. So thank you so much, Lenka. Stephen, I want to ask clarification on that question. Are there any forms of cow cheese that is healthy for us to eat? Try to get grass-fed cow cheese. And again, I tend to buy my cow cheeses from France or Italy or Switzerland. Fascinating thing is the higher the elevation that cows were raised, and that goes for goats and sheep as well, the more health benefit it has. And interesting, Parmesan cheese, Parmigiano-Reggiano, by law, the cow can only be made when the cows are eating spring grass or fall grass. And it has to be growing grass. And that's when the milk has actually all the active ingredients. And there's a very good study out of Italy that show that Parmesan cheese eaters, men, have much better vascular health than men who don't eat Parmesan cheese. I see. Let's talk about bread. So in Estonia, we eat black bread. It's made from a black type of rye. So let's talk about white bread, brown bread, black bread, or any other type of bread categories. What breads are the best to eat? That's a really great question. And I think the answer is that a lot of it depends on how good, how diverse your gut microbiome is. We have traditional cultures have been eating bread for 10,000 years. Now, believe it or not, bread is a modern food. We've only eaten bread for 10,000 years, which is a little blip of our existence. But if you've got a great microbiome, the microbiome is really good at eating some of the mischievous parts of bread, for instance, like gluten. And there's even gluten-eating microbiome that think gluten's delicious. Our microbiome is a defense against some of the negative aspects of bread. But most of us, particularly in the United States, our microbiome has been so destroyed that we have absolutely no defense system against what could be fairly harmless compounds. 
in the book I'm writing right now, there's a fascinating study looking at two of the blue zones, Dan Butner's blue zones, one in a mountainous region of Sardinia, the other in Costa Rica. And they found that legumes and bread were actually a negative aspect of the diet that was compensated for by, get this, the goat and sheep cheeses that these people ate. So intriguing. But I love how you pull together all of this medical research and scientific research on nutrition. Remarkable stuff. As we come to the tail end of this podcast, Dr. Stephen Gundry, one minute. Do you have any closing message for us? The closing message is fatigue is not your fate. We've been convinced that fatigue is part of our modern lifestyle, and it's not. Fatigue is actually a warning sign that we need to look under the hood, as we say in the United States, and find out why this is happening. And the good news is it's absolutely fixable with really a few tweaks in our diet, in our exercise program. And that's the exciting news. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Gundry. And for those of you who want to go further, read The Energy Paradox. The book came out March 2021. What to do when your get up and go has got up and gone. And think about what would happen if you invested four or five hours reading this book. The most immediate effect is you're going to have more energy in your day-to-day life. The four to five hours that you spend reading this book, you'll probably regain that time just from energy boost over the next 10 days. So I love books like that, that actually give you back your time. And I want to suggest that everybody head over to drgundry.com, D-R-G-U-N-D-R-Y.com and check out this book. Dr. Stephen Gundry, thank you for being our guest today. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks everybody for tuning in. Appreciate it. This is Vishen Lakhani and I'll see you on the next Mind Valley podcast. Take care, guys. Take care, Dr. Stephen. Bye-bye. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.